I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 3 as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, With God's help, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this afternoon, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. That should also be printed for you in your bulletin. Matthew chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 12. Give our attention to the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And praise God for his holy word. Well, already in Matthew's Gospel, we've heard some of the claims of who Jesus Christ is. He is the son of David. His bloodline descends with the royal line. We've also heard the claim that he is the son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And we've seen the reactions to people to Christ as king and the announcement of his coming. We've seen the reaction from the religious leaders who heard it from the wise men religious leaders who were indifferent to that message. Uh, We're going to see a little more indifference here in our passage this afternoon. We also saw the reaction, the hostile reaction of Herod, the uh, pseudo-king in Jerusalem when the wise men announced it. We'll see a little more hostility in our passage this, this afternoon. We've also seen from the wise men the appropriate response to the coming of Christ, which is, of course, to bow down and worship him to give him everything in sacrifice of thanks, demonstrating a life of obedience. And last week, we saw, while Jesus Jesus was a baby, his family fleeing according to the word of the Lord, we saw that from day one, Jesus is opposed by evil powers, evil forces in this world. But no matter how hard, no matter how much these evil forces may attempt 
to thwart God's plans, we see that God's purposes are unstoppable. There's nothing that can end up stopping God's plan. In fact, God can even use evil for furthering his plan of salvation. Christ's kingdom has come, is at hand, John the Baptist says. And Jesus is our Messiah, our new leader through a new exile, from a new exile, and through a new exodus. He's a divine ruler. He's come to do, to do what exactly? His kingdom is brought as at hand to do what exactly? And how can you enter into that kingdom? Well, that's what John the Baptist is here to answer. That's what he has come to proclaim. He's come to prepare people for the coming of this Messiah and his kingdom that is on its way. I'm really struck here by John's very simple message. Uh, It's a message that even little children can understand. In fact, I'm, I'm so impressed by John's simple message, it embarrasses me a little bit at how esoteric and abstract many preachers, including mine, where messages can be. John uses a very simple message to proclaim a very simple truth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from how I read the text, there's really only two ways to respond to John's message. It's the main idea that I have for this sermon. John's call to repentance will either harden your heart or soften it towards Christ's coming. John's call to repentance will either harden your heart or soften your heart towards Christ's coming. So the question is, what's happening to yours? When you hear this message, is your heart hardening or is it softening at the news of Christ's coming? Now let me just remind you for a minute that we are at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. But let me remind you of the chasm, so to speak, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because when you pick up your Bible and go to Matthew's gospel... All you have to do is just flip back one single page and you're in the Old Testament. For us, there's just a micro hair's breadth between the old and the new. But that's not the case when we know the history behind this gospel. We know that for 400 years, there was a gap from when God spoke to Malachi to this message from God through John the Baptist. 400 years when the Lord was silent. 400 years waiting for God to speak. And after 400 years of silence, 400 years without a prophetic voice, 400 years since we last heard Malachi speak these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. After 400 years of silence from that, we meet John the Baptist. And we read these words in Matthew's Gospel. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't miss this. The Lord speaks again to his people. He speaks through John. John, the last Old Testament prophet. I love the character of John the Baptist. He's like a guy out of the movies. Uh, can't make this stuff up. 
Uh, he's a wild character, isn't he? You know, in Luke's gospel, we're given a little more background to John the Baptist, um, how he appears, the angel of the Lord appears to John's parents and commissions and tells them what to do. But in Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist just sort of bursts onto the scene almost out of nowhere. And as I said, he's the last great Old Testament prophet. That's what Matthew's telling you because he appears almost like a prophet. He's like, he is like Elijah. He is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy of Elijah coming on the scene preaching. And John the Baptist, his whole appearance, his whole demeanor is, is interesting, isn't it? Uh, one person put it this way, his entire ensemble preached. Uh, John the Baptist, he comes, he lives in, he comes from a place like Elijah, the wilderness. His home was in the wilderness, just like Elijah. Uh, just like Elijah the prophet, John's clothes are that of a prophet. Camel's hair, the same kind of clothes that Elijah wore. Uh, John's food, his diet, is that of a prophet like Elijah. Locusts and honey. Why locusts and honey? That's the cuisine of the wilderness, that's why. Like Elijah, he's got the voice of a prophet. Repent. You know from reading your Old Testament prophets, this is often the prophet's job is to call God's people back, to return to the Lord just as John is doing here. And John has, got, John has got the job of a prophet like Elijah, preparation. His job, his main job is preparation. He is not the Messiah, as he says in our text. He is not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. But verse 3 spells this out, his job. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John is what's known as a forerunner. Do you know that? What a forerunner does? A forerunner runs ahead of someone who's coming. In this case, a king. The job of the forerunner is to make preparations, to make ready the people who are going to encounter the king. The forerunner is someone who runs in front of the royal procession that's coming down the road. He's alerting, to pe- alerting people to get ready for the king. And when you see him, you need to know that the king is right around the corner. There's no delay. The king will be here before you know it. That's why John is saying the kingdom is at hand. It's right there around the corner. The forerunner is kind of like when you wake up in the morning... I don't know what time you wake up. When I wake up in the morning, I can see the rays of sunshine. I can't see the sun yet. But I know when I see the rays of sunshine, the actual sun is not far behind it, right? John is like the rays of sunshine. And Jesus, the sun, is right around the corner, coming any moment. That's John's job as a prophet. When he bursts on the scene, he says, get ready, because someone's coming behind me, and he'll be here before you know it. I'm just here as the advance agent ahead of the king to make preparations. And if you want to know how to welcome this king, and if you want to know what kind of kingdom he's bringing in, then you need to hear this message. Very simple. Very simple, John says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, that's not the message you'd hear from a king and his messenger normally. It's not what you'd expect, right? Normally from a king, I think what you would expect, perhaps, is pick up your arms. Get ready for battle. Put your armor on. John's message essentially is submit. 
surrender. The kingdom is at hand. The Messiah is here. Now there's three questions I want to walk us through in this text to help us understand John's message, why it's so relevant for his hearers and for us. First question is, why to repent? Why is John calling for repentance here? Well, look again in verse 2 because the answer is right there. Repent for or because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John, as a herald, as a forerunner, is convinced, in other words, that people are not ready. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been proclaiming this, right? John proclaims the kingdom is at hand. What he means is that people are alienated from God's kingdom and from God. They've been banished from his presence. What he means is you are actually standing in opposition toward the one who is coming. That's your, that's your problem right now. You are being warned to get ready. You are being warned because you have been banished and are standing on the wrong side of the battle. People are alienated. They're estranged not only from God, but also each other. This is the, this is the issue that people's lives are in. Not only are they at enmity with God, but also enmity with each other. And to make matters even worse, even at enmity with themselves. And this is the problem with sin in the world. We are not only, you and I are not only in opposition to God, but you and I stand at enmity with our neighbors and ourselves. We were made by God to enjoy his creation under his reign, enjoy his whole realm with other people, but sin and rebellion has destroyed that. It's destroyed our relationship with God. It's destroyed our relationships with each other. It's destroyed the way that we understand ourselves. John's message is, but the coming of the kingdom is meant to change all of that. And in the kingdom of heaven, those who have been alienated must be gathered to God. Those who have been banished must be restored. And that's what Christ has come to do. The way someone is welcomed into the king's kingdom is to be reconciled to him. The kingdom of heaven, let me put it pretty simply, the kingdom of heaven is nothing less than newness of life. And John's coming, that's what he's saying. A new life is coming because Jesus is going to restore our relationship with God so that we can live in his kingdom with his citizens. That's important to know, friends, because then it really helps clarify what the gospel is. Because the gospel is not repent and then the kingdom of heaven will come. The gospel is also not repent and then forgiveness will be offered to you as if your repentance is the grounds for forgiveness. The kingdom or the gospel is also not God will reconcile himself with you if you repent and fulfill his commandments. The gospel is, John's pronouncement is, God is reconciled through his Messiah, through his son. He has, he will forgive all trespasses, all sins, because of what Christ has done. Now, be reconciled to him. Receive him. Enter into reconciliation. Put down your hostility. Put down 
your battle against God. Stop opposing him. Put down your weapons and make peace. Receive him. That's John's message. He isn't coming when it's going to be convenient for you. He isn't coming according to your schedule. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why we need to repent. Why you need to repent. But how? How are you to repent? In some sense, it's almost meaningless to know why unless we know how we are to, re- to repent. So John goes on to explain that here in our passage. The passage tells us, I should say, how to repent, verses 5 through 11. Notice, first of all here, I think this is great. I mean, as a preacher, I, I, I love this verse. In f- verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. You see the response that John has? Very simple message, very simple sermon. And look at the response. I mean, God uses this, of course, right, to bring all kinds of people to respond to this message. I wish more preachers, myself included, would realize and accept the fact that God can use very simple messages. It doesn't have to be the most highfalutin academic language or always the most penetrating insights. It can be some of the simplest messages that the Holy Spirit can use for impactful results. I appreciate how simple John's message is and just how simple it is to respond to the call to repent. There's three things, three responses we see here in the text if someone is going to repent and enter into the kingdom of heaven. The first response is to confess your sins. You see that in verses 5 and 6. Because all these people are going out to John, and then it says in verse 6, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. It's the first thing you need to know about repentance is you have to confess. And notice it doesn't say they're confessing other people's sins. The text says they're confessing their sins, their own sins. Each person, in other words, has to own up to the fact that they have sinned against an almighty, holy God. Taking personal responsibility. If you're to welcome Christ as king, prepare for his coming, then you need to soften your heart, recognize that you have offended God, recognize it's, it's on you. You can't pass the buck onto someone else. The Bible makes it very clear that sin and our rebellion is what puts us at war with God, but at the same time, that God is also gracious and full of mercy toward those who do confess their sins and fall on his grace and mercy. Psalm 32, for example, says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice that. Confession is followed by God's mercy. Proverbs 28, verse 13 also says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, will obtain mercy. If you're to enter into Christ's kingdom, you can't do so trying to tuck away sin secretly as if God is going to miss it, ignore it. The appropriate response is to acknowledge God knows our sin and openly confessing it will bring his mercy and grace. I love how Thomas Watson put it. He said, if we would have God cover our sins, we must uncover them. Enter the kingdom of God first, a very simple way. Respond to John's message 
of repentance by confessing your sin to God. But also number two, how to repent. If we're going to be repentant people welcoming Jesus, we also need to be baptized. So the text says, notice this, they're going out to John and they were baptized by him, it says in the River Jordan, verse 6. Now, why baptism? Baptism here, John's baptism, as these people are receiving it in verse 6, it is a sign, it is a symbol of that confession of sin that they've given. It's a visible profession, as it were, that they are dying to sin and rising to new life. That water is like a death, and it is also like a resurrection out of the waters. They need to also be cleansed, right? The water is a sign that they are defiled by sin, need to be washed of that sin. That's what their baptism is signifying here in verse 6. They know when they're confessing their sin and they're going to John to be baptized, they know that their ultimate problem as Jews living in the promised land in Israel, their ultimate problem is not the Roman Empire that is occupying their country, their territory. Their ultimate problem is that there is another king who is coming, and he will judge the sin of people. Their ultimate problem is to be rescued from their sin, not from Roman occupiers. Here's the situation to really, I think, appreciate what's going on in this text, to draw this out a little bit, a little bit more. We think of John is here in the wilderness at the Jordan calling people to confess their sins, to be baptized. Remember, these are God's people living in God's promised land. These are people long before this, hundreds of years before this, who are God's people living as slaves in Egypt. At that time, they did not have the opportunity to worship God. God, in his mercy, led them out from that enslavement. He led them out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea through an exodus so that they could be free to worship him. He led them through the wilderness, teaching them to trust in him. And then he brought them to the River Jordan and into the Promised Land. Now, they entered that land... God gave them the promise of, if you obey me, if you follow my commands, I will dwell with you in this land. But you know the history of what happens after they do enter the land, right? Generation after generation, God's people fail to live up to his commands. Failed king after failed king, idol after idol, Baal worship after Baal worship, Asherah pole after Asherah pole. To the point that God's people in the end, they don't look any different than the idol worshipers of the land they're trying to kick out or the Egyptians that they had left. The land becomes so defiled by idolatry, by false worship, uh, by by. By, by disgusting behavior from the people, that it is no longer God's promise that he exiles his people and the land is filled with sin. The land and the people living there 
have become so estranged from God because of their defilement that they need another rescue. They need to be washed and cleansed again in order to welcome them, the one who will deliver them. That's what John is doing. He's preparing them for this cleansing, for this new rescue. See, what God's people need is someone who can bring true freedom from sin's relentless pursuit. What they need is a new exodus. Here's what John is doing as a forerunner of the Savior. Like God's people in the Old Testament, they are led out of defilement in the land. They are brought to a place to be cleansed. This time, the River Jordan, not the Red Sea. They will be cleansed with a baptism similar to the baptism of crossing the Red Sea so that they can re-enter the promised land to, de- to cleanse it of its pollution and sin. And Jesus will be the new Moses to bring them into, back into that land. He will be the new Joshua, in fact, who will lead God's people cleansed once again back into the promised land. I mean, this is not just me making stuff up in the text here. Um, the Red Sea, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 10, when, when God led his people out of the Exodus, he calls it, he says, you know, uh, God's people at that time were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. But John's baptism, we see the larger context here. He's preparing people for this new Exodus. And, that's, and so his message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is preparing people by leaving the polluted land to be cleansed and joining him in the wilderness so that they could return again under Jesus Christ, their king. And friends, John's call to repentance will either harden your heart to remain in a polluted land Or it'll soften your heart to leave it, to confess your sin, be baptized, and await your Savior who will lead you to the promised land. Now, there's something you need to be said here about John's baptism. John's baptism here is not the same baptism as Christian baptism. To welcome Jesus as king, you don't just need to take a dip in a pool. Or you don't just need to, you know, take a ceremonial shower. Uh, Just undergoing baptism with water is not the type of baptism, actually, that's required with repentance. It is a sign, Christian baptism, the water is a sign, but it points to a deeper significance, a deeper meaning. You actually need an inner washing. A baptism that you need by repentance is an inner washing of the Holy Spirit. This is why John goes on to say in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the baptism that you need to have if you're to enter Christ's kingdom. A baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning... God, through his spirit, washes your soul of sin through forgiveness in Christ. That Christ's blood 
wipes out your sin in God's eyes. That's what John means here. And the, the fire is a picture of burning away all of the impurities. Not a literal fire, of course, but a figurative one of burning away of all the impurities of sin. This is what John means. This is what the Bible means by baptism being necessary. Jesus himself, you will remember, says in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, how to enter God's kingdom? Repent by confessing your sins, be baptized by the Holy Spirit, But then our text points us to a third thing necessary for repentance, and that is we must bear fruit. There's a lot of there's a lot of external dangers to the church these days. Uh, Many Christians are worried about persecution. Um, Many Christians are worried about culture war issues or about sexual ideology in our culture and so on, those are all external dangers. And while those might be real threats or issues we need to address as Christians, and I think perhaps the, the greatest danger that comes from comes to the church is usually inside the church. One of the greatest dangers within the church is the sin of presumption. Presumption is a danger because it's self-deceptive and it's very subtle. Presumption, what it is, is it's confidence in something without sufficient grounds or reason. To put it simply, it's trusting in the wrong things for salvation. It's a confidence in salvation without the proper grounds for it. I've seen it, maybe you've seen it in the church, I've seen it in the church and in Christian college, Christian college campuses, for example. People think presumptuously. They think, I was born into a Christian family, therefore I am a Christian. What they really mean is, my family heritage saves me. Or people say, I was baptized as a baby, therefore I'm a Christian, I'm saved. What they really mean is religious ceremony saves me. Or someone says, I raised my hand at a summer camp or a Christian event, so I must be a Christian, right? What they're really saying is superficiality, superficial spirituality saves me. Or I went to Christian schools my whole life. I grew up in the church, so I'm, I'm good, right, with God? What they're really saying is religious duties save me. If those are your reasons for confidence, don't presume. Those are not sufficient grounds for salvation. That's what John is saying in this passage. It's right here in the text. Let me read it again for you. He says in verses 7 through 9, but when he, the Bible says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him, to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. First time we're going to meet the Pharisees and Sadducees, not the last time. But you do need to know here at the start that the Pharisees were known as being 
were very religious, scrupulously obeying all the religious traditions and laws. They held great teaching authority over the Jews. The Sadducees had great political party. They were members of the wealthy Jewish high priestly caste or class. They worked with the Roman occupiers. Both groups, religious experts. Both groups grew up knowing the scriptures. Both groups grew up uh, performing many religious activities. Both groups lived presumptuously. As John says, what they're trusting is their ground of confidence is in their bloodline. They were descendants of Abraham. Their confidence is in their descent, their family heritage. John says, do not presume that your ethnicity will save you. Do not presume just because you descend from a certain group of people that God is only going to work through that group of people. John says, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones, meaning God doesn't need your bloodline. God doesn't need your skills, your background for anything to accomplish his purposes. He can save from the most unlikely people. He can save the most unlikely people. He can and he will and he does. The point I want us to see, I don't want you to miss here, is that there is no spiritual safety in outward religiosity. There's no spiritual refuge, no religious refuge in spiritual superficiality. So that means your ethnicity, your family heritage, your church attendance, your education, your income levels, how much you give to the church, not a spiritual safe haven. None of that will save. John the Baptist actually condemns people who trust as their ground of confidence something other than the coming Messiah. Your only ground of confidence to stand on in this life and in the next is in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King, and his kingdom. That's your only ground of confidence. Not in your own great works, not even in your fruit of spirituality, as we'll see in a moment. Anyone can confess their sin with their mouth. Anyone can receive water baptism on their body. Anybody can look religious. Your ground of confidence must be in Christ alone, through faith alone. But it also must show a change, if that is the case. If you are standing on Christ as your only confidence of salvation, a new spirit-filled life must actually show. As Christians, we ought not to be like the fig tree that Jesus cursed in Matthew 21, having leaves but no fruit. We need to take this seriously, and John does too. need to see that fruitlessness leads to judgment. It's not just that fruitlessness is sort of neutral ground. Fruitlessness actually leads to judgment. You can see that here in verses 10 and 12. John goes back to his analogy here of fruit on a tree. He says in verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. I think John's illustration here, his point is pretty simple, kind of like his entire message, right? You can get the picture. Trees are meant to bear fruit. A tree that's not bearing fruit is not a worthwhile tree. It's dead. 
What do you do with a dead tree? The only thing it's good for at that point is to be chopped down and used for firewood. So complete will this chopping down be, John says, that notice here, not even a stump will remain of the tree. The picture he gives is the axe is going to the root. I mean, the judgment is going to be so deep, the judgment is going to be so complete that not even a stump will remain because even the roots will be torn out. Point is, repentance without fruit is going to lead to total, complete judgment. Just professing repentance is not even worth, is not even sufficient as a grounds of salvation. Our entire lives must change. Outward religiosity is not grounds for salvation. But John goes on and gives another image of coming judgment here. He says in verse 12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I think, I know most people here did not grow up in a farming community, and if you did, if you're in the minority, you probably didn't sift wheat by hand. So this image is kind of unfamiliar to most of us living in a city of wheat being used a winnowing fork what is that it wouldn't have been unfamiliar to john's original audience though they would have known immediately what he's talking about here a winnowing fork is kind of a pitchfork light thing or maybe almost like a shovel and so what would happen during harvest time the farmer cuts down the wheat gathers it and then in order to separate out the grain from the other useless stuff the farmer would take this pitchfork shovel like thing shovel get a shovel load of the wheat and throw it in the air and the light stuff the worthless stuff is is so light that the wind will just carry it off and separate the grain from the other chaff by itself and so the image i think again is very simple for at least for john's original hearers they would see that what john's point is when the messiah comes when he comes in judgment he'll be able to separate all the wicked from the truly repentant all the wicked from the saved, that he is going to separate the fruitless from the fruitful, the ungodly from the godly. There's a time when the unrepentant and the repentant will dwell together, right? There is a time, just like the, the wheat, where the ungodly and the godly will be in the same place, but... The pretentious are presuming they must not think that they can hide that way for spiritual safety because when Christ comes again, he will drive them out. And it will be a thorough judgment. Again, notice John says he will clear his threshing floor. There will not be one stalk of wheat, one grain of wheat that will be missed. No unrepentant sinner will be able to escape his judgment. I like this promise here, though, that is tucked away. I don't know if you noticed this in verse 12. I mean, the the judgment is complete for the unrepentant, but did you see how for the repentant there is assurance? In verse 12, John says that God will gather his wheat into his barn. I love that. 
It's an assurance for you, believer, that if you are repentant, then Christ will gather you up. He will store you. If you are right with God, it's a promise of preservation for those who are repentant. The point, again, is the only grounds for confidence and salvation that we have is in Christ. Judgment is coming. Someone who only professes with their mouth but doesn't demonstrate that Christ is actually, has actually changed their lives show themselves to not be repentant at all. You might be asking yourself at this point, do I know that I have fruit of repentance? How do I know? Sometimes in the Christian life, right, we feel like all we do is struggle against sin, and if that's the case, am I really saved? I think one of the first fruits of repentance in the Christian life is simply to acknowledge what John is saying here and respond with faith in Christ. That's the first fruit of repentance. Do I believe? Am I growing in my faith in Jesus? And I often say uh, someone, they're wrestling with, am I really a Christian? Do I really, am I really saved? I don't see a lot of fruit in my life. I hate my sin. I want to turn from it, but I just don't feel like I'm, like I'm a great Christian. I have to say, well, a non-Christian wouldn't even be thinking questions like that or asking questions like that. Only someone who's truly convicted of their sin who's been changed by the Spirit, would be concerned about the fruit that they're bearing or lack thereof. That's a good sign. That's a good fruit to be concerned and want to change. That can only come if you're really believing in Christ, trusting in Him. That's a sign of a believer, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. If you see that, if you, if you have questions like that, I want to assure you that those are good signs as a Christian. If you have no concern at all, you live your life day to day thinking, there's no problem with sin. If you live your life day to day thinking, I don't need a Savior. And those are signs that perhaps Spirit has not been working in your life. You've not been showing fruits of repentance and you do not have grounds for confidence and salvation. The Bible does spell out other fruits of repentance that we can expect to see from Christians and give us assurance in the Christian life that we're on the right path. Galatians 5 is a great place to see this. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You might want to turn back to that passage and just meditate on it in your own time, and think, where does my life measure up with these things? But don't be a presuming person. John's point here is make sure the fruit of your life is a confidence in the coming Messiah. It's only in Jesus Christ, standing firm by faith in him alone. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How? Confessing your sin, baptized in the Holy Spirit, giving new life, demonstrating fruits of repentance. Then finally, 
One more question we need to answer here. The text gives us when to repent. You might be familiar with the name George Whitfield, 18th century British evangelist pastor, known for his preaching. George Whitfield traveled from Britain to the United States a few times during his life, going on these uh, different treks throughout the U.S. preaching. On his first voyage to the United States, he was going to Georgia. He kept a diary throughout his life. And in the voyage, he shared in his diary about a ship's cook that had a bad drinking problem. And everybody on the ship knew about this cook's bad drinking problem. And not only that, many of the cook's very um, obvious sins in his life. And when confronted on those sins, the cook's response was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that's true. I need to change my life. I need to repent. I'm going to do that. But two years from now, I'm going to live how I want for the next two years. And then I will reform my life, he said. George Whitfield in his diary noted that just six hours later after the cook said that, he died. And the point, of course, is that putting off repentance can have dangerous consequences. When are you to repent of your sin? For some people, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, their problem is they just have a hard heart. They don't think they need to repent. They refuse at all to repent because their ground of confidence is in themselves, essentially. For other people, however, their problem is, yeah, yeah, I know that I need to repent, just not yet. I know I have sin. My heart is softening up to that fact, but I'm going to wait on that for a while. John makes it painfully clear in his message here that none of us is guaranteed more time. None of us is guaranteed another day in our lives. Today is a day of repentance. When John says the kingdom is at hand, at hand means it's breaking into this world already. When John says that judgment is coming and the axe is already at the, foot of the, at the root of the tree, he's saying, look, the axeman has already gone to the barn. He's already picked up the axe. He's already selected the tree. He's already started swinging the axe. It's already making its way to the root. You don't have a moment to lose. When John uses the image of the chaff and the wheat, the wheat is already gathered. It's already been harvest time. The farmers have been out in the field. They bundled it. It's at the threshing floor. The farmer's getting his winnowing fork. He's about to stick it in and throw it up in the air. You don't have a moment to lose. All he has to do is scoop and toss. That's how close judgment is. That's how close the king is. It's breathing down your neck. The rays of light are shining. It's only a few more moments until we see the sun. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. So repent today, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The difficulty that some have in entering the doorway of the kingdom of heaven is kind of like the experience of a little boy who got his hand stuck in a very expensive vase. 
His parents have a beautiful priceless vase in their home and the boy has his hand stuck inside and the parents try everything they can to get the boy's hand out of the vase. They try oil, uh, they try soap, nothing, no success. And so they get to the point where they think, well, maybe we now just have to break this priceless vase. That's the only way we're going to get his hand out. And at that moment, the frightened boy cries out, oh, would it help if I let go of the coin I'm holding on to inside of the vase? And so it is all too often with us. We cause others and ourselves a lot of anguish, a lot of frustration. We risk the truly valuable things because we will not let go of the insignificant things in our lives. God was silent for 400 years and he spoke through John the Baptist. He's not been silent for the past 2,000 years since Christ. He's been speaking to you today through his word. I'm not John the Baptist. I'm not an Old Testament prophet. I'm not wearing strange clothes. I'm not eating strange food. But I'm here today with a job. I'm here today to proclaim a message. A message from God. I've got a job to bring this very simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because someone's coming behind me. He's coming again. He's going to lead a new exodus. And he's calling you out of this sinful world to leave a polluted world to join God's people in the, the wilderness, to confess your sins, to be baptized by His Spirit and bear fruit. He's calling you to stand with God's people at His gates to His kingdom. I'm here today to tell you to let go. Let go of your rebellion. Let go of your hostility towards God. Soften your heart. Let go of looking to yourself for answers. Give your life to Jesus and follow him. What's stopping you from following him?